Crisp, frosty mornings are here, and as you dart from Christmas parties to winter fairs, blue vine in hand, you'll probably be on the hunt for beautiful gifts to wrap and nestle under your tree. This episode of Confect Corner will aid and inspire your festive retail forays this month, whether that's the fine porcelains of Sydney-based brand Mud Australia or a new album by Peruvian-German artist Sofia Cortizis. We'll check in with online retail giant My Teresa to find out what makes customers tick at this time of year and how e-commerce can evoke emotion. And we'll delve into the history of the most festive evergreen, mistletoe, to find out about its druidic past and the romantic mystique around it. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confet Corner. We are selling... Luxury. Luxury is a dream. It's something you reward yourself. It's something you give to others. It's not something that you need necessarily. When I found finally my voice five years ago, this place really granted me to be able to write the melodies and, and to be in, in a completely other world where I can, like, it's like a, the door of like Peru and Germany. You'll see mistletoe growing on apple, poplar and hawthorn trees all year. But somehow it's only at Christmas that we really notice it. Festooning sprigs around their house with their translucent white berries, at once beautiful but also toxic. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. As usual, I'm joined by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian DeBias here in the studio with me. Hello to you both. Greetings, Sophie and Marcella. Hello, Gillian. Hello, Sophie. Well, it's been a busy end of the year with last-minute trips and fines before 2024 arrives. Marcella, let's start with you. What do you have for us this month? Well, I was recently traveling through Athens and found Naxos Apothecary, the flagship store of the Greek fragrance and skincare brand, not far from the famous Syntagma place, is a huge, high, clean, white space. It looks like an art gallery for me. And inside, dried herbs and flowers are bottled into beautiful tea blends in a viewing laboratory with people wearing white coats. The soaps, perfumes and creams are all inspired by the lush nature of Naxos. This is a neighboring island of Paros, which you might know. I opted for several of the beautifully wrapped large soaps and hand creams in silver tubes with matching fragrances of the herbs of Naxos. And those are my first Christmas presents, actually, this year, which I bought in the sunshine at 25 degrees. Imagine. Aegean heat for your friends and family. I feel that that brand is so beautiful because it kind of combines that sense of the ancient Greek identity with something really modern like you described so beautifully. And Sophie, how about you? Well, I have just come back from Heckfield Place, which is just an hour outside London. I feel completely almost <laughs> confronting the real world, <laughs> even recording this, because I've been sort of squirreled away doing a retreat. But it was so beautiful there. It's this lovely country house that's been so carefully and beautifully restored into a hotel. But while I was there, it was this wonderful moment where they were putting up all the decorations. They had this enormous Norden fir, which they were erecting outside the front. But inside, everything was dried. Dried flowers, a whole Christmas tree made from dried hops and dried peonies with lights inside. And then this incredible marble fireplace is just decked with crisp dried ferns, which sound awful, but actually are so hauntingly beautiful. And so everything in there was this wonderful sense of almost Miss Havisham nostalgia, really, really natural. And it was quite inspiring, really, for me. And the kind of Christmassy moment felt very real. I think there's something very, very special when you get these sort of grand old English homes. But they open up with a kind of, they bring life to it and freshness. And you, you're allowed to live in these spaces that you don't feel are museums. There's this touch of tradition, but somehow 
something really original about bringing it right up to our day when you can live it and it's full of creative people and food and ideas so it's quite exhilarating as well as being at retreat. The walled garden it's like a kind of Peter Rabbit wonderland really of this amazing space with the spalliered trees and all these wonderful beetroots and chard and everything in season now. There's a real sense of revival like that but modernity. I'm going to write a piece for Confect so I won't spoil it but there is also this wonderful landscape garden garden with huge 12-foot Douglas firs and beech and oak. The trees really are something there. Even though you can feel the city is not the wilds of England in any way, the escape is really palpable. It's very nice. And Gillian, what do you have for us today? Well, talking of escape, oh, I was in Paris and I entered a whole other world at an exhibition at the Institut du Monde Arabe. It was called the Parfum d'Orient and it focused on the heritage and the ritual of perfumes from the East, very cleverly mapped out in this space in terms of starting with the nature, the raw materials, then going on and moving on into the street and the reality of spices and herbs and fragrance and dissecting the profession of perfumers and spice sellers. And then you move on and you break down the ingredients and you look at the importance fragrance has always had in rituals, in religions. And then you turn another corner and then you enter a space that's all about the home and it's all about hospitality and the meaning of fragrance and gift giving. And because, of course, it's an exhibition, every room had very, very innovative olfactory experiences, boxes that you press buttons, little wind turbines where petals release these incredible fragrances. It touches on memory. It touches on society, on ritual. I could have stayed there for hours and I'm definitely going to go back when I returned to Paris because you can't spend enough time really doing it justice in one go. Julian, I'm coming with you. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> it makes you feel that they have done the history of scent justice because even in the magazine we, we have a scent columnist and they talk about orders of monks who did a certain cinnamon essence at this time of year because they could, they were fasting, but they were allowed these spices. This type of idea of the history of why we have even modern fragrances and where they come from is almost taken for granted. And I think it's brilliant this exhibition exists and we'll have to go when we go to Paris next. This time of year is always a busy one for retailers. The Christmas decorations go up, special offers are announced and shops swing open their doors to customers hoping to get everything on their list and more. But the hype of this season is not exclusive to bricks and mortar. For many, the best way to take items off their Christmas shopping list is going online. And that's where global luxury e-commerce platform My Teresa comes in. Founded as a boutique in 1987 in Munich, the company now ships to over 130 countries, offering ready-to-wear shoes, bags and accessory for women's wear, men's wear, kids' wear and lifestyle products. Earlier, I was joined by Isabelle, who is My Teresa's chief customer experience officer. I started by asking her... How can my Teresa, as a digital retailer, engage with customers emotionally? And does she create that feeling of rapport with them? I think to talk about an online luxury retailer in the context of emotion might sound for many people like a juxtaposition. But actually, that's what we are doing on a daily basis. And why is that so important to us? We are selling luxury. Luxury is a dream. It's something you reward yourself. It's something you give to others. It's not something that you need necessarily. So that's why we think as a company that emotion is everything what we should stand for. And also that people connect things that they shop emotionally. So it's something for your birthday party. It's something for a big meeting that you might have. So that plays a big role. And how do we do that? We try to do it in every touch point we have, starting with a very direct communication to our customers. It's always with love from my Teresa. It's always lovingly hand-packed if you get your parcel. There's a note in your parcel. You know actually who packaged the parcel. There is a 
customer care team, which is very personal when you call, when you email, because it's our own team. So along the whole customer journey, we try to be as personal as possible. And interesting enough, also, I mean, COVID is ages ago for all of us, but afterwards, people were getting even more personal because that's what you miss. You need human interaction to survive and to breathe and feel. And that's what we do with our brand, with our teams. And that's why it's so important to connect. And we also do it in a physical way, be it in our stores in Munich, as you were referring to, but also when we invite our customers, celebrate with our customers, visit our customers, talk to our customers. It sounds a bit old fashioned, but actually that's what we do. We do human interaction in every touch point we have. And it's interesting. I mean, people have talked for a while about how online retail is changing so quickly and that it's augmenting and becoming, you know, 3D and there would be sort of, you know, androids in your your living room or whatever. (laughs) But actually, what have you seen in the last few years in terms of real change in your sector? So I think what really developed is this constant need for newness. It's a typical retail thing and it was like there before but newness is something that is really becoming a huge part of our business as well newness on messaging newness on images newness on products on social media content so that is really becoming very very important so speed is what is really super important and then on the other hand side it is even more authenticity, honesty, transparency, which is really important. That might sound all very abstract in that sense. And of course, you can support it with AI. We also do that. Still, from our point of view and from our customers' point of view, it should never feel technical. It should always enhance what you are in the mood for and what your personality needs in the moment you want to shop. So what we also see is we have very, very super busy customers. Our customers are super busy with their lives, with their professional careers, with their families, etc. But we are also a form of escapism, you know. Sometimes they have a time at night where they just scroll and they want to just see beautiful things to maybe clear up even their brains and minds from the busy days. So that's what we are seeing. So technique is super important, but not for the sake of having it, but to enhance everything that you enjoy while shopping. I think it's interesting that you talk about this dreamscape that shopping is online. It also has been and is to many people historically there's always been a correlation between shopping for clothes and accessories and beautiful things and a kind of leisure. But I wonder how and if that's still the case. Do people see online shopping as something experiential? Like, you know, you might step out for the weekend and and shop in, in Bond Street or wherever your equivalent is from a London perspective. I wondered, is that still something that you see that your customers regard online retail as? Yes and no. I think it's very personal. And I think also in the luxury field, the physical experience plays an essential role. And people should go to Bond Street and enjoy shopping with a very nice sales assistant helping them, etc. I think that there is something enjoyable. What we see often with our customers, because as I said, they are very time poor, They, of course, mix. So if they have a shop who curates things that you cannot find anywhere else, especially in this time where we all look for the best gifts for our beloved ones, you know, that is essentially something. Or, you know, they're drawn by people who really help them to find the right dress, etc., and we do it as as well on our side. So because we have a big team of personal shoppers who actually are responsible for building an emotional relation and really knowing everything about you as a customer, where you are playing the biggest role while you're on the phone or in the email. So I think, you know, it's always a mix, but it stays. I mean, I, as I said before, it is something 
where you need to experience something because we're not we're not selling food, which is a very different, you know, necessary piece of our life. We're selling this shoe that you want to wear where you feel confident. This is what we're selling. And no matter if you're digital or in a very personal relationship with our personal shoppers, this plays essentially the role. And Maybe just giving you one example, we do always speak to our top customers and try to understand their needs and etc. what we are doing right, what bothers them about my Teresa. And we once had this wonderful interview of a, of a lawyer in the US and she said to us, you know, I have this Alexander McQueen jacket and I did not lose one case when I'm wearing this jacket, you know, and I mean... How luxurious to have a piece in your wardrobe where you're not even losing a case. And that shows this whole emotional tie to what we are actually bringing to our customers. I mean, there's so much psychology in clothes and it's something we're talking about a lot in the magazine and on the podcast. There's a sense of identity, but also, as you talk about their confidence. I wonder how much you understand the psychology of your customers, but how they make decisions online. We try to understand, I would say. I think we have a very good understanding in how the people shop. Of course, we know what they click first, what they want, how fast they shop. You know, I mean, we have all KPIs in the world. We know exactly if they click this one, then they click this next. But I think what is also super interesting is even if people search for something, you know, in almost half of the cases, they don't even shop what they searched for originally. So that shows also, you know, you need to inspire. And we, as, as my Teresa, we want to inspire and curate an offering. So that means we do a selection for our customers in the best way we can, based, of course, on KPIs. We always say the mix of art and science, you know, there's, of course, the KPI part to it. But there's also a, a lot of putting ourselves in the shoes of the customer, being empathetic to their needs, which we are doing constantly. We're measuring the so-called NPS as a net promoter score, where we see how satisfied our customers are. And the most valuable part of it is that we get comments. What are they happy about? Luckily, a lot of comments, what are they happy about? And what are they not happy about? And actually, this is so rewarding and also valuable to us. And this is how we try to understand the psychology of our customers. And actually, our customers helped us a lot and do it on a daily basis to improve ourselves even, because sometimes we're not even thinking of what we get as a feedback and what is a cool feature, what do they need even more, what they love about us. So I think there's many ways and we also try to meet a lot of our customers in person or on the phone. So really to dive in, because of course, there's also cultural differences, having Asian customers or US customers or European customers, there's customers in how you shop, etc. But this is all we learn directly actually from our customers. And tell us about sustainability. I mean, I wonder what that means to your customers and how you can remain ahead of the curve. Yes, yeah, so sustainability has multiple facets, I would say. So it is very dear to our customers in that sense that if many of our customers shop something, it's something to keep. That's the natural part of luxury as well. It's super high quality. There's always craftsmanship involved in everything we sell. So that's why actually also we have a wonderful collaboration with Vestiaire Collective. So even if you shopped something beautiful that you don't want to wear anymore, you don't fit in it anymore, etc. We help you to sell it to others who would love it. I think that's something that we also want to teach or train our customers that these things are long-lasting. That's a big part to us. Then, of course, packaging very naturally is something that our customers are very much engaged, especially because it's very obvious. You receive a parcel, 
and how much packaging is there. So we try to make it as sustainable as possible. Even if you have a wonderful gift box, there's no magnets anymore so that you can recycle better, etc. And then we are starting, of course, to really educate our customers about how to wash, how to dry clean, what to dry clean, etc. This is not yet something that we do, but we will try to do an extra section on that because if you, for example, have a wonderful cashmere sweater, it's not necessary to dry clean the cashmere sweater every two days. It's not even good for the cashmere. You need to hang it to fresh air and it's basically doing the same effect. So I think, you know, all of these things is a lot of education, training, making aware. I think that is is something that is our role and where we are basically uh, heading. And then if you want to, you can also add something you can contribute to the um, CO2 emissions that you're having with a parcel. It's very multifaceted and it's something that we do on a daily basis as a company and and of course, together with our customers. I like the idea of, of fresh air dry cleaning. I'm going to start doing that myself. (laughs) The clean London air is going to be um, employed in my household a little bit more. But it's very interesting to have these discussions. And actually, it shows how close you are with some of the customers that you would even be in that space. You know, the maintenance, what's the next life of the garment that they might have bought with you. And it shows that there's a sense of longevity. You're in it for this kind of long haul, which is quite interesting in itself. Yes. And then, of course, repair. We cannot offer it globally because actually we are too widespread with our customers. But repair is a big thing. You know, if you have wonderful shoes, you can bring them somewhere to repair and you can wear them again. Well, tell us, the elves are very busy over at My Teresa, I imagine, (laughs) getting Christmas ready. We're certainly in this period running up to Christmas and I imagine retail is very busy for you. But I wondered, what is it like for your team at this time of year? And also, has gift buying changed in the advent of digital commerce? You know, this idea that your shop and peruse and maybe potter around getting all your Christmas shopping done in person has changed. People's likes have changed. I wonder how you stay part of the conversation when people are buying gifts. Absolutely. So it's a very exciting period for us. And we always have a wonderful title of this season is for us share the love. And I think that's also how gift giving maybe evolved and and how we see it. Lucky us, we have a new category or since one and a half years, but called life. And we can offer so much more to our customers what you can gift. And that's what we can see. We have a category which sells lifestyle, tabletop, beautiful blankets, candles, you know, smaller price point, very high price points, wonderful tech accessories. So that is really important because you need the smaller ones and you need the bigger ones. And we also see people, you know, shopping for themselves, gifting themselves. I think that's beautiful tradition because, of course, we have a lot of female clients who gift themselves as well. And and I can only encourage all the women to gift themselves as well. So there is a, of course, the usual gift guides, the usual things. And then it's really something about really giving the right thing to your best friend. And our, our teams, especially our personal shopping team, is very busy with that to help find the right gift. And interestingly enough, it starts earlier and earlier. You know, you can feel that people are getting very excited about Christmas very early on and engage in everything that might prepare this journey. So not only for the Christmas Eve in those countries who celebrate it, but also um, holiday season in the US with Thanksgiving, but also, you know, there's a lot of parties going on where people gift giving, etc. So I think it really starts early on and people love to gift others, which is actually nice to see. It's a lovely idea to think of people searching for that perfect gift for their friends. But I wonder whether sustainability has also come to play at this time of year, because people really do want to get it right. It's less about, you know, this abundance of presents and maybe more about 
that thing that somebody really desires, they'll keep forever. The idea of longevity and that something being, you know, useful and loved, you know, indefinitely is more important at Christmas than it's ever been. I wonder if that's something you're seeing. I mean, we see it in that sense that, for example, I personally think if you, for example, gift a gift voucher, you know, that's something beautiful, but I feel a bit less sustainable because it's only about thinking I give something to Sophie that she can select herself and it's just about giving a gift. So I think it's exactly what you said is like finding the right thing for the person you have in mind is about longevity. And if you see what people are buying in, in our life category, you know, whether it's starting a set of beautiful tabletop where you start with four plates and then next holiday season or birthday, you give another two plates. So there's a, something that is really about longevity and gives something to a person that they can even collect or giving music, tech accessories, you know, it's something to stay. So that's what we see a lot. It's not about just getting it done, but people are very thoughtful these days we are seeing. Well, it's a lovely image. And thank you so much, Isabel. I will think of you in, in Munich pottering around the Christmas markets too, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get to those as well as, as your busy, busy day. But it's wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Confect Corner. Gillian, how do you approach the season? Do you have gifts in mind? Do you order them online? Or do you, I suspect, like strolling around and discovering them in person? <laughs> Well, you've got me in one there with your last option. I really, really, if I have time, like to do it when I'm on a trip. Because then I think you do find special things that the person you're giving the gift to can't find anywhere else. So my gifts tend to be on my strolls through Paris or was recently in China or Tokyo. And unexpected places and things that give me as much pleasure to buy as to give. But usually I sort of hover and think, well, I'll have one for them and I'll get one for me. So it can be a very expensive exercise. <laughs> How about you, Marcella? Do you go over the top with your gifts during this time of year? Actually, it's exactly the same. I don't go for Christmas shopping as I wouldn't find anything exciting. It's more the other way around. When I'm somewhere like Athens or Genova or wherever, let's say around three months before Christmas, I might discover nice surprising presents, really surprising presents. Because I love to see the face of a dear person unwrapping slowly a gift and discover something unexpected. I love this moment. And Sophie, how about you? Well, I always buy my presents in person. I don't think I've ever bought a present online. <laughs> because I love the idea of supporting local shops. The toy shop in my area is run by two Frenchmen. It's like a French vision of how a little toy shop should be and they gift wrap everything. They're very sweet. So... It makes life very magical to go into that emporium and buy things from there. And I feel that that in itself is an experience for me that I really enjoy. And I have to be careful. I do get really carried away with Christmas. And I, I'm sometimes the last person in the shop on Christmas Eve, almost being escorted from the premises while I'm just thinking, I need something else. It is probably about bringing happiness because I know people maybe rely on me or expect something curious and beautiful. And if I haven't given it, I always want it and search for it. So sometimes I think I might have to tone things down, but so far I haven't. Do you get great pleasure wrapping your presents? I do. I mean, I really like brown paper wrapping, but lovely ribbons. I bet Marcella has a wrapping tip up her sleeve. <laughs> well, whatever comes upon my way, actually, you know, if I find a piece of some leaves or a piece of fur or whatever, so I add it on my package. One year it's white paper, all white. The other one it's all orange. Actually, I get inspired by the shop windows of beautiful stores and yeah, then I invent something. Next, we're off to Berlin, where we meet Peruvian-German artist and DJ Sofia Cortesis to talk about her just-released debut album, Madres. Laced into the sophisticated beats, euphoric synths and field recordings that shape the 10-track work is the message of what it means to fight for love and win. 
As Cortessis began work on the album, her mother fell seriously ill, but after a relentless attempt to get seen by world-renowned neurosurgeon Peter Vykoshki succeeded, her mother's fortunes were miraculously reversed. Cortessis met up with Confex Paige Reynolds at Berlin's former GDR broadcaster-turned-cultural venue Funkhouse to talk about her sonic journey so far and the emotional events that defined her most recent work. When I was a child, my father was like an active lawyer, but he was also like in a rock band. So he had like a lot of instruments at home and I really liked the melodies. I grew up playing keyboards, I like being very playful. But when I came to Germany, like everything was changing. I think I was trying to find the kind of music that I very love, but I, I kind of like, I really like the solely vibes that you can find on hip hop tracks. So when I started to do music, I started as a rapper actually, but it, I was very bad. The way of producing music for hip hop tunes is like a lot of sampling from the things that you see. And I love the art of like recording on your MPC and like doing like a live recording, like just from like jamming, you know, like it could be a jazz session. By that time I was living in Hamburg, but when I moved to Berlin, I really fell in love with the electronic music scene at the time. like. We were like, I'm talking already about 10 years ago where you had like all these big raves and like on the backyards of like flats and houses and where like the situation was not really like with so many investors coming. I was very lucky to have a little bit of the end of the Berlin era of liberty and all this like new wave, techno, trans, electronic scene. So I was really uh, captivated by it. There was like a time where I took like this as a school, like every time I was going to Trees or like or to Panorama Bar to listen to electronic music. And I really got into like all this Detroit house and I thought like maybe this is a kind of sound that I can combine like with samplings that I do. I always find it very important to like sample the places where I go, the people that I met, and the things that I do. I always said like my heart is Peruvian, but my brain is like very Germanized. Seven years ago, I started to find my voice, to start also like to communicate and tell the story that really like matters to me. When I first did my release on Studio Bahnhof, it was like really like this new sound that I had, like a combination of Berlin and South America that is my roots. So I sent it to him and he said like they loved it. At the beginning, like when I started to make electronic music, I let the machines talk. But now I feel like like I'm working with the machines and I'm talking more. So it's like a I don't let the machines now talk for me. Now I'm the one talking. You know, when you are evolving all the time, and I think that the human nature is like always to keep like having different faces in your life till you find the most comfortable way and the most truly you where you don't have to act or pretend something that you are not. And I think like as you get older, you are more comfortable, like you you know what you're saying, you know, you're not like lost in experience, you have to experience now. I believe in a higher power and it's like so crazy what happened because I really thought that I would lose her like at that moment and it's like and it's like after losing your father to like this kind of horrible cancer and then you try to breathe and then something like this comments your mother and it's like like even to bring this album is really scary for me because always when I release new music something happens that's why it was so crazy that I met this person because without the neurosurgeon my mom would not be alive right now and we were going through bad times to good times but when there was good times there were the most beautiful times and that's like um and she's like such a force for me because like i really like depend on her like what she thinks how she sees life she had a very hard life but she had also like a very beautiful life because it's like 
and I, I just want to honor her because like it's all about the force and the love that she gives really touches miracles and I think it's like even like fathers that are mothers or like friends that become your mother or like aunties or like just like a person it's like the beauty of this love this unconditional this love that you cannot find anywhere that is like a force for you you know When you have like advanced lung cancer, it metastasizes. So sometimes they give you three months, but now she's living two years with it. And I'm very lucky that we have the time now to be with her and give everything she wants. Like she's like my queen. So first it was a miracle that I got an appointment with him. Second, it was a miracle that he would even operate on her because everybody was against it. Just one millimeter going wrong and she's not, never going to walk or talk or everything. All this was so surreal and sometimes I think that this man is a UFO. And seriously, I'm not a spiritual person. Like I grew up in Germany, so I'm very rational as well, you know, like, but now I really think about souls maybe find each other before or like, You know, and I think this person is not from this world. Every day I wake up and say, like, I'm say thank you to all the beautiful things that happened to me, and like also try to do like, like be also more there for other people, because I'm so thankful for the people that are there for me. So I'm trying to give back even a little bit. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to give back when you get back when when i found finally my voice five years ago this place really grounded me to be able to write the melodies and and and, and to be in, in a completely other world where i can like it's like a the door of like peru and germany i always said like i'm a frustrated filmmaker so funkhaus is like a It's like a time machine where you open the door and it's like all these ideas, all the impression, but you don't know where exactly you are because every door is a different room. So it's a kind of like, this is for me, Funkhaus is like my friends, the warmness and like escaping from the real world in order to be able to write about your own world. I don't see it as, as one place in Germany, I see it as their own world, Funkhaus doesn't have like a continent, it's like the world of like the time machine capsule where you come and create beautiful things. That was artist and DJ Sophia Cortesis in an interview by Confex Paige Reynolds. As wool-clad shoppers stagger along the streets of London on the hunt for Christmas presents, many will be drawn to a stylish new homeware shop in Marlebone. Mud Australia is a ceramics brand which has seen global success, with 10 of its warmly lit stores opening in the UK, America and Australia since 2007. In the window of Mud Australia's newest London store are beautiful bowls, elegant teapots and a newly launched porcelain lamp, which is the latest item in Mud's collection. The designs are simple and incredibly pleasing to the eye, all highlighting the beauty of porcelain. Earlier, I spoke to the brain behind the brand, founder Shelley Simpson, who told me about Mud Australia's humble origins. So I moved into a share house in Rose Bay, which was, was a lovely place and a woman who was in that house had a pottery shed in the backyard and she'd say to me go out and have a go and probably for six months I thought I just don't want to go and get covered in clay I was not something that interested me and then just on a warm sort of sunny Sunday nobody was around and I wandered in and I started mucking around with a bunch of clay and a kick wheel without any instruction and have never felt so comfortable anywhere. 
and was obsessed. From the moment I started, I couldn't stop making things and they were terrible. But I just had to keep doing more and more and more. And I don't think I'd had... I mean, I loved music and theatre and that was sort of my 20s and at high school. But I had never really been as obsessed with any one thing as and singly focused as I was with Clay. It's interesting, though, that you started like so many potters at the wheel, but now the brand has expanded so incredibly. Mm. And for those listeners who don't know it, it's a very beautiful, simple concept in some ways because the pieces are just very, very minimalist in some ways, but then the colour palettes are so nuanced. There's this lovely balance between the simplicity but also this lovely complexity. How did you go from that moment at the wheel, becoming addicted to this wonderful craft, to scaling up and producing even just beyond that lovely shed vignette that you've painted Mm. for us? It's been gradual because next year it's 30 years that I've been doing this. So it's just been a slow process of probably listening a lot. I didn't want to go back to my former life. So I wanted to stay with Clay. I wanted it to be my job. And I think that was really important. I really wanted to earn enough money to be able to house and feed myself. And so I really focused on it being something that was commercial. I learned about casting and making moulds. And I've sort of created a weird half thrown half mould made piece. The porcelain supported by a mould, but it's worked internally with the same equipment that you would use when you're throwing. It is still a very handmade process. There's no machinery. There's just a porcelain support, I guess. And then I would ask people what they wanted. So I'd go into the design stores that I liked and strike up a conversation with the owner and say, what are you looking for? And they'd start talking to me about things. And then I was fortunate enough to have my early studio in Surrey Hills in Sydney, which is close to all the magazines. And I didn't intentionally open there. I just found a space that was great to be my studio. And then people from magazines found out that I was there. So people like Donna Hay and Bill Granger and the like would come into the studio and ask for things. And then they'd teach me about food and, you know, what a risotto bowl needs to do, needs to cool down the the very hot rice, so you can't have a high-sided... There are different bowl shapes that are necessary for a collection. So I listened a lot to those guys. I listened a lot to the retailers and just started making things in my image of what they were talking about. And I think mud is very quiet, but the colours can be really loud. And the concept is that people can be creative themselves and put together their own collection, their own colour palette... You know, I put the 19 colours that I like into that space and then people take out the pieces they want for their homes and their environment. I've been around so many beautiful porcelain factories in Europe that, you know, are clinging on, frankly. It's interesting that you expanded as everyone else was contracting. This idea that, you know, people, like you just said off mic before we came, people are astonished that you're making things to the extent you are Mm. in Sydney, in Mm. Australia. How was it scaling up and creating that manufactory in the context of all these difficult forces? Yeah, I think because I hadn't trained, I didn't think that you had to be a trained potter to be able to make what we make. It's all part of a process. Different people do different parts. Like 10 people touch each piece through the process. So if you're good with food preparation, you can also do this. You don't have to be a trained potter. So I think finding the right people was not that difficult. And I've had wonderful trained people who have got a lot of experience, who've been very generous with their information and helped me a lot along the way. But also a lot of people who just, we didn't have the training to say, oh no, don't put that much pigment into the clay because it isn't the right thing to do. We just did it. We sort of had no rules, we had no boundaries and we just did whatever we wanted to do to create the colour palette that we've got. I probably opened my kiln doors too early in the early days because I got these orders and I had to get them done and the kilns had to cool down quickly and get a fan, cool it down and get the product out. I didn't have those boundaries, so I just tried things differently 
I mean, MUD's always been a bit of a family environment. We employ just over 100 people globally, but a lot of those people work in our retail stores. We've got 10 stores around the world, about 50 people working in the studio. And we produce a lot for a small amount of people. We're producing a few thousand pieces a week and sending those to our stores. I think it's very interesting that you live above your factory, your workshop. I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, frankly want to get as far away (laughs) from that kind of heavy industry kind of work yet you're there in Sydney and as you say it's like a family but Mm. tell me about your home there. So we live in an 800 square meter space we share our kitchen with the rest of the team but they're only allowed in when we're up and ready to go to work so the doors don't open to that space until we're ready to go in. It's beautiful it's got The original floorboards from when the factory was built, we haven't touched them and they really have a beautiful patina like a big old basketball court. And it's I'm ruined forever because I don't know how I'll ever go back into a house with rooms that are regular sizes. When you have that much room, it's pretty fantastic. Tell me about the lamp because it's exciting and and indeed about product development because Mm. you work so much with the restaurant industry and that's very interesting, the way you've collaborated How have you evolved and now we're seeing this amazing lighting product? I think everything has come from a need that I have, whether it's the first or the tableware that we do, the platters and plates and things that we've done, spoke originally to the small table that I had and sharing with my family and my children and designing things that I loved, then selling them and found that other people love them as well. We also did um, a wall sconce because I moved into an Art Deco apartment and had awful lights that were sticking out from the walls and I just needed something to cover them. But the table lamps being in a warehouse space and you've got lots of dark corners and I don't want fluorescent lights on, so I have to create moods and sort of rooms with light. And so probably four years ago, I met Zach Hanna, who was a young industrial designer, ended up being a friend of my daughter's, and she kept nudging him and saying, mum really wants to do those lamps, can you contact her? And then he came in and was incredibly respectful of Mud as a brand and really researched the shapes and the forms and worked out how to mechanically put everything together for us. So there's not one lamp, there's three. So there's a standing lamp a table lamp and a portable lamp that has a battery and can move around. And can be at the table, yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, it's a placemaker, yeah. instant candle instant. substitute. Yeah, yeah, which again, <laughs> in my studio space is fantastic because, you know, if you've got people coming over, you need a bit of extra light in a spot where my stereo is doesn't have actually enough power points, so it works, that little portable lamp works really well there. When I design, I think of the clay first It's interesting to have somebody thinking of the porcelain as a secondary thing and then learning, oh, if there's a hole at the top and the bottom, how does it move in the kiln? We have to work this out together. So the design definitely evolved over time with Zach learning a lot about porcelain production and me learning a lot about his design aesthetic as well. That was Shelley Simpson, founder of Mud Australia, in conversation with Sophie Grove. You're listening to Convict Corner. There's more to mistletoe than meets the eye, from its use in ancient druidic fertility rituals to its role in more recent Christmas traditions. Now, research is ongoing to establish whether it might have more measurable potential in modern healthcare, as writer Jenny Linford tells us in this month's Final Thought. You'll see mistletoe, an evergreen, hemiparasitic plant with distinctive pale green leaves growing on apple, poplar and hawthorn trees all year. But somehow it's only at Christmas that we really notice it. Festooning sprigs around their house with their translucent white berries, at once beautiful but also toxic. Magical powers have long been attributed to mistletoe. In Norse mythology, it is the one plant with the power to kill Baldur, beloved son of Odin and the goddess Frigg. A dart made from mistletoe is used by Loki to cause his death. An early description appears in Natural History, the seminal work by the Roman author and naturalist Pliny the Elder, completed in year 77. He wrote of the Druids of Gaul that they held nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and the tree that bears it, going on to describe a ceremony where a priest clad in white 
I send an oak tree to cut the mistletoe with a golden sickle. It is the belief with them that the mistletoe, taken in drink, will impart fecundity to all animals that are barren, and that it is an antidote for all poisons. The fact that mistletoe grew not in soil but on trees was evergreen and visibly buried during winter, so it long associated with fruitfulness and vitality. During the Middle Ages in Europe, women wishing to conceive tied sprigs to their wrist or waist. But in more recent Western tradition, mistletoe has come to be associated with a particular Christmas ritual. Anyone who finds themselves under a bunch should, or could, be kissed. It's usually opportunistic lovers who linger under the leaves. It's unclear how this festive quirk would evolve in the context of modern manners and ideas of consent. By the 19th century, the practice had become well established in the UK. Charles Dickens, who did so much to popularise Christmas, depicted a joyous festive scene of kissing under the mistletoe in the Pickwick papers. Mr Pickwick, with a gallantry that would have done honour to descendant of Lady Tollenglower herself, took the old lady by the hand, led her beneath the mystic bran and saluted her in all courtesy and decorum. In the US, Washington Irving's 1820 bestseller, The Sketchbook, described this scene. The mistletoe is still hung up at Christmas, and the young men have the privilege of kissing the girls under it, plucking each time a berry from the bush. When the berry is all plucked, the privilege ceases. And yet this plant is still steeped in mystery from a botanical point of view. Mistletoe contains more than 25 times the amount of DNA in each cell than we do in ours. Research has been carried out into the use of mistletoe extracts in cancer treatments as they have been shown to kill cancer cells in vitro. Another area being explored is mistletoe's potential capacity to boost the immune system. Our fascination with this intriguing plant continues. That was Jenny Linford, writer and author of the Kew Gardens Christmas book, which is out now. Marcella, do you stand under the mistletoe at Christmas parties? Well, as a genetically romantic person, I find mistletoe very beautiful and prefer to be close to it, but not under it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. What about you, Gillian? Do you believe in the magical power of this plant? Well, I don't know about the magical power of mistletoe, other than I believe it must inflict romance on people. But I was fascinated by the power of medicinal plants when I was walking through a forest with our Switzerland correspondent, Miriam Zumbal, who was working with the psychiatry department of the University of Zurich to build a medicinal garden all about well-being and resilience. And she's just in the final process. She's trying to find the final funding for this garden that will literally be used by the hospital, by the psychiatric ward with well-grounded research to colour code plants, to do powerful herbs so that people can walk through it, the doctors can use the herbs, but it really is nature healing and talking to her about all the medicine behind it was really quite inspiring. So I can't wait till the funding is found and they start working on it and we can walk through on our next visit to Switzerland. And Sophie, is um, mistletoe evocative to you? It is. When I was a child, we used to go to an orchard near my house and we would climb the old apple trees and get the mistletoe before Christmas. And it's this wonderful moment of this icy tree and, you know, you'd be up there, miles up, it felt. And then we'd gather it. And I felt that ritual was really a beautiful thing looking back. But also I still love it. I think it's so beautifully described there by Jenny. You know, these poisonous berries, beautiful. They're kind of menacingly gorgeous in the way they're white. You know, it is just so intriguing that it had the power so many thousands of years ago, but we still turn to it despite everything. So it is very curious and I always have some in my house. I don't know if I linger under it anymore. (laughs) Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced and edited by Carlotta Ribello, Isabella Jewell and Christy O'Grady. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye, thanks for listening, and have a great Christmas. <laughs>